Hello, and welcome to Make My Multiversity, the best podcast in our universe for exploring the Marvel multiverse. I'm Jana Hill. And I'm Elias Rosner, and today we are going to dare stir a dreaming celestial's slumber. Excelsior. Word. Right. We're talking welcome Eternals again. late 2000s, folks. Late 2000s. This is, I'm getting into comics again around here. I'm still out from reading comics regularly. New 52 hasn't hit yet, so sorry. Uh, well, we're only a couple years out. We are talking Eternals again. We are talking 2008 Eternals, a uh, volume of comics I had never encountered before this read. Yeah, didn't know it existed. Um, And I guess uh, part of that is even though there's a lot of interesting creators who like touch on this issue, it's not really a signature piece for any of them, right? No, no, it really isn't. And it's kind of weirdly forgettable. It It is weirdly forgettable. I didn't hate it while I was reading it, but I had a tough time recalling it like 12 hours later. Yeah, unlike like Gaiman and JRJR's Eternals, despite its many flaws, I remembered that well after. Yeah, and that's it. And I didn't really, I didn't appreciate how true that was until I was reading these, which were a little bit lighter and airier. Yeah, and it really feels like not emblematic of the decompression that's beginning in this era, <laughs> but. I think you would know better where where in that process this is sitting because they've Marvel's clearly started being influenced by the bookstore market uh as well as Bendis's you know approach to comics um well Bendis the, has a really fast rise right cuz he comes in to Marvel in 2000 with Ultimate Spider-Man and instantly like decompression is his mission from the first arc of Ultimate Spider-Man mhm um he famously was like, everyone likes the Spider-Man origin story, and it was in one issue. What if we gave it, like, six issues so we could really, like, uh, ex- explore it? Mm-hmm. Um, and then by 2004, he's blowing up the Avengers. And by 2008, he's, like, on top of the Avengers for a couple years now. Like, the Bendis style is, we're well into it now. It came up really fast. Okay. Uh, but between 2004 and 2008, Bendis has taken over more and more Marvel books. He's already successfully relaunched Avengers. And he's about to spearhead Dark Reign and do his Dark Avengers, which I would say is probably his best Marvel team book. Oh, wow. Um, his best Marvel book is his Daredevil, no question, with a bullet. But um, And and Jessica Jones is quite good. But his, his team books I don't like usually, but I thought Dark Avengers is fun. Hmm. Okay. That's um, a good positioning for, of kind of where we are uh, for this book. Yeah, and this is also funny because these are the 2008 to 2010 are the couple of years when I was reading every comic that Marvel published, like you do. <laughs> and you didn't even get this one. Yeah, and I didn't. And yeah, given that, I was just like, Eternals, that's not a Marvel thing, right? That's like Conan the Barbarian or like Transformers. I'm, I'm going to skip that. Rom. <laughs> Rom. Very funny because the first two pages feature just like splash page after splash page of various Marvel properties uh, and yeah. events. Yeah, you're shoving a lot of characters into a couple of pages. Yeah, you got Daredevil, you got the X-Men, the new X-Men with their... I love that that era of, of uniform, the the gold X and the black. The Morrison Quietly uniforms? Yeah. Have you read that run? No. Another one we gotta put on the list. I know. 
Um, it's not Thanos. as long as you think. And every issue in that run is a straight banger. There's not no no flab on that entire series. Okay, okay. The Runaways make an appearance. I noted that. I put that in my notes. I was like, "Where are we in continuity?" Okay, Runaways is cool enough that uh that we can put them in front and center. <laughs> and uh, Rick Jones gets a cameo. Yeah, I Rick Jones was weirdly popular in the early two thousands. He shows up in the original uh, Jessica Jones comics. Oh yeah, he does. Yeah, Rick Jones was weirdly around in this time. People were kind of, um, in, the guys who were writing were interested in reclaiming him because when they were kids, Rick Jones was teamed up with like Captain Marvel and the Hulk and stuff. Yeah, and then everyone was like, no, he's just a sidekick and then pushed him off to the, well, side. Well, then he becomes a kaiju, so he's like had gone to some interesting places. I did not know this. Oh, you haven't read the, uh, that's right, you haven't read the Al Ewing Avengers run. No, I haven't. Rick Jones becomes an awesome hacker who gets mutated into a kaiju. That's wild. It's a wild series. It's on the list. It goes on the list. Oh my goodness. This list is never ending. And that, well, that, yeah, that's the secret. Because um, they keep on making comics. But, uh, okay, so... That's where we are in like the scheme of the Marvel timeline. Uh, this also means we're, we're post-Civil War, and we're kind of in the Initiative era. Yeah. The end... Are we far enough in that the initiative has kind of fallen apart? Uh, we're far. That's kind of baked in from the beginning, but yeah, we're in the part where like the downfall of the initiative is being heavily foreshadowed. Okay. And I guess for our listeners, because that's a comic we haven't read in this podcast, uh, the initiative was after Civil War when every one of the fifty states got a designated superhero team. Um. And it was, there was a series called Avengers the Initiative about their training, etc. Um, and it was like the most police state dystopia version of superheroes that Marvel has ever done with a smile. And um, it was heavily influential on the MCU because of all the like big government shield stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, a in real those mess. Yeah, but it's politically, those movies are a fucking crazy mess that will be so fun to reevaluate in 10 years i mean it's already fun to reevaluate now considering we're 14 15 years out from iron man now yeah 2000 iron man is coming out at the same time as the comics we're reading today okay um, the mcu is being born just like jessica jones and uh luke cage's baby who was also in this in a brief cameo yeah I really uh, liked all those cameos. I thought that was a good a good way of kind of situating us in the Marvel Universe at this point. It was, I re- and I appreciated it. Um, I kind of wish more books would do stuff like that, actually. It would just, like, um, I don't know. It'd be good to go back to books when, like, Sam Wilson was Captain America, and just, like, if they cued you in to expect that at the beginning with a little, like, whirlwind tour, who's wearing every mask. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it would be really fun. Yeah. I like this. Uh, before we get into the story, though, do you want to uh, do our traditional crediting of the creators? Yes. So we've got. So today we read uh, volume four of the Eternals, which is with it was nine issues and then an annual. Uh, so all nine issues were written by Charles and Daniel Nauf, um, and then the annual was written by Fred Van Lanty. Uh, 
the artists on the main series, issues one through six, uh, was Daniel Acuna, uh, and then seven through nine was Eric Wynn, with Sarah Pacelli joining on issue eight, uh, and then we had Pascal Alexi on the annual. The colorists were, uh, once again, Daniel Acuna on issues one through six, Andy Troy on issues seven through nine, and Brad Anderson on the annual. Uh, and then the main series was all lettered by Todd Klein, and Ed Dukeshire did the uh, annual lettering. Yeah. Uh, nice and simple. Nice and simple compared to where we've been recently. I was just going to say that. God. Um, so I, we'll, uh, we'll talk about the ancillary players in this creative lineup in a moment, but um, these main writers, Charles and Daniel Nauf, that name, those names ring a bell to you going into this? No. Like, I, I thought maybe I did, but... Um... I, I didn't look them up and nothing rang a bell. So maybe maybe there is something and, and you know that, but I don't. Well, I, I like to research the, the primary creators on the books that we're reading. So Charles Nof doesn't have that many Marvel career, uh, credits. And um, his dad... Oh, and I was thought that Daniel might be his brother, but Daniel's his dad. Mm-hmm. Um, which I don't know why that shocked me, but I just kind of assumed they were a brother pair. Um, and... They their their longest Marvel run was right before this Eternals. They had just wrapped up doing Iron Man before Matt Fraction came onto the title. Oh, um, interesting. But that so that means they were doing the issues of Iron Man proper during and after immediately after Civil War. Oh. So have you ever read all? Have you ever read every issue of Civil War like I have? Because I'm an idiot. No, I have not. That was a cool thing to do in 2008 when I was getting back into comics. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, that no, was like a, good. That was a recent uh, exciting story that comic shops are still talking about. Um, so I had read those Iron Man issues, and you know what? They're like uh, really solid, serviceable issues. That was kind of my comic book introduction to uh, Happy and Pepper and a bunch of the characters who uh, are big in the movies, um, and thus the my like first impression, right? Mm-hmm. Good first impression. I think they, they their characterization is nice. Um and um but it turns out that Daniel Nauf, the, the dad, has a pretty big TV writing career. Including he is the creator of HBO's Carnival. Do you ever watch that one? No, but I know of it. It's got Clancy Brown as a psycho evil preacher. It's cool. That's um, wild. Yeah, so he was the creator of that, and he was also, I think, the co-creator or a, a primary writer on the show The Blacklist, which I did not care for. I think Blacklist is still going on, too. Is it really? That's the one where Ultron is a serial killer or whatever, where Ultron plays Hannibal Lecter. James Spader? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Eight seasons. Jesus. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's where uh, that's where Daniel Acuna has been. Uh, not Daniel Acuna, Daniel Nauf. But Daniel Acuna. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there's a guy with a much bigger Marvel career, one that I assume you've uh, passed encountered before, right? I have. I most know him from uh, being the primary artist on Tanahisi Coates' run at the beginning of Black Panther. Yeah. Um, which is but like I've pretty. Seen him all around Marvel. Yeah, I, I, I looked up um, some selected credits that I found. He did. Um, <clears throat> Marjorie Lou's Black Widow, which mm-hmm. was um, the the Lou Acuna Black Widow was the one that people pointed 
YouTube for a long, long time. He did parts of Jason Aaron Wolverine. He did issues of uh, Bendis' Avengers. He did issues of Gillen's Uncanny X-Men and Rick Remender's Uncanny Avengers. And he had a big part of Dick Spencer's Captain America run, which probably didn't put much shine on him. No. Um, how do you feel about Acuna's work? I am split. Okay. Because I, I really do like his, um, oops, sorry. I've got thumps from the stairs above me again. Oh yeah, I heard that. Yeah, sometimes you got neighbors. Sometimes I got neighbors. I'm just going to let that pass for a second. Maybe I'll talk over it with nothing that important. No, come on. Everything you say on this show is important. How do you feel about Daniel Acuna, Elias? (laughs) I was going to say, I think our our, our audience would disagree. Uh, I'm split on on his... um on what I like about his, his work and what I don't, because sometimes I think it can be a little bit too, because he colors his own work, which Mm -hmm. again, I really appreciate. He has this painter digital painterly look, but not like, I I didn't want to say, I wanted to say digi paint, but that's, that's not what I mean. But when you look at, is it the marked Von Haberlin? Haberlin's uh, work? Yeah, Haberlin. I don't think there's a Yeah, bomb. over on Shadowline. Uh, I'm sorry, I don't like any of that. I don't like the visual look of any of that stuff. You know me, I'm a secret uh, supporter of that. Even though I agree with you, a lot of it's pretty uh, tough to look at. Yeah, but that kind of of like digital paint, um, I like I like the way Acuna does it. And I like you know, just seeing the variety of styles, but sometimes it can be very hard to parse what's going on. Uh, especially when he's doing, um, characters that aren't superheroes, you know, superheroes, you look for the icon and then you know who it is, but when it's just regular people doing regular people, things a little bit harder for me to, to differentiate faces sometimes to make out the details that I need. Um, yeah, he's guilty of, uh, like, blank background stick figures sometimes. Yeah. Um, um, and his art, like, overall, there's, like, a... He does these, like, big, very flat, non-textured surfaces, and he'll often do faces that way, but then, like, the facial features themselves are hyper-detailed with these really tiny, thin lines. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's... It's, it's weird because the details are, like, floating in a sea of negative space all the time, and the negative space is, like, the figures themselves a lot of the time, too. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's also interesting is I feel like by Black Panther times, um, he has figured out his style and, and with that, I feel like his, the tone in the Black Panther, uh, books, it's, it feels like a little mythical. Mm-hmm. It's got like this, uh, this distance to it and this, like, uh, this epic quality, but this, in this era of comics, everything was so like gritty grounded that uh, his artwork feels like hyper real, even as he's portraying like really out there shit because it's the Eternals. Mm-hmm. You know, you know what I mean? Like that that two thousand eight, we have to make all the costumes uh, justifiable with like buckers, buckles, and zippers and straps. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is so funny how how uh, that style did not survive at all immediately it really hasn't they got sick of it it must be real and explainable but not really not really uh a good 
Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm trying to talk and I hear the, the thumping. I'm like, well, th- there goes my thought. There goes that thought. Uh, well, that's okay because I realized I was about to go into a whole MCU rant and we should probably save that for a whole episode. <laughs> yeah, maybe we should we should avoid that. Uh, let, you know what? Let's go to, to a break and then we'll come back and talk about the book itself. That sounds great.
And welcome back. We are here to talk about the fourth volume of The Eternals. Uh, Can you believe that there has been four volumes over the course of, what is it, 40 years? uh, And none of them broke 20 issues. Yeah, I can believe that. You can believe that? Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess now that we're actually this far in, pretty pretty clear why, sadly. It's, re- it's real unfortunate, too, that the 90s, like, really detonated it, because that's where everything gets super messy, and then they feel like they need to do damage control so much in this part that uh, you hardly, it hardly feels like a story sometimes. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty sad. Okay, uh, so what? where to start? Where to start with this one? Um, so this being a self-contained series, the antagonist is... Um, is actually is like pretty um pared down from previous eternal stuff where they're always fighting somebody new in every issue i feel like you know mm-hmm. um in this one the i i can i guess who did you consider the main antagonist because i thought legbo was kind of built up to be at least the most interesting antagonist he is the most interesting antagonist but uh you know druig is kind of positioned as being the guy you know, following up from from Gaiman and JRJR's Eternals, he Druig really was the the antagonist, and I think in part because they're trying to do this like Cold War style arms race, mm-hmm. where we have the American Eternals. They're not really American, but you know they're now based in America instead of the you know Olympia in where wherever the the polar arctic or whatever because olympia isn't where the polar eternals are but who really cares at this point not me Um, that's for sure yeah the celestials based in san francisco they're the americans and then druig is in the fake nation of voroshenka which is essentially just uh russia slash the ussr slash slash not really latveria i would call it dollar store latveria yeah, Dollar Store Latveria is When good. your mom won't buy you the real Latveria, but she says the one on the bottom shelf is just the same. Yeah. Um, it's it's described here as one of the former Soviet states, very small, somewhere in Eastern Europe, and because America doesn't really know world geography, it's fine. doesn't matter. And this way, also, no one could get angry because <laughs> they made up a nation. Yeah, and they do that Whether every so or not often. The, mm-hmm. Which, like, uh, that's not, like, a, a concept that uh, particularly bothers me. But, like, I don't know, Latveria's right there, and these guys aren't that interesting. <laughs> yeah, but you can't have Druig beat Doctor Doom. Um, I guess that's true. It would be fun to watch Druig uh, betray Doctor Doom and then Doctor Doom to get... Also, how much do you want to see Doctor Doom team up with, like, uh, Doctor Doom and Cersei would have such uh, good vibes. Hmm. That would be interesting. Cersei would would definitely try to betray Doctor Doom, but only because she wants to see him flail about. Um, was the Gaiman Eternals the first time Druig was really positioned as like an antagonist to the other Eternals, or did that happen no. earlier? No, the last time Druig really was an antagonist to the Eternals was way back in the first Eternal series, right at the end. He tries to take over the 
the pyramid of winds. He tries to get the like super weapon so he can do something. It's when, when Kirby was really swinging for the fences and trying to find someone, anyone to be an antagonist. Yeah. And so Druig has a bit of a, uh, you know, a heel turn. Because before that, he was kind of a nothing character in the background, and then he's being positioned as this schemer uh, who does stuff. And then no one really does anything with him since after that because Until... they're too worried about the uh, the Celestials and whatnot. Yeah, but... the Celestials seems to be most people's in to these stories is when they want to use the Celestials as antagonistic stuff. Yeah, I don't even think Druig was still on Earth when any of the rest of the stuff happened. I thought he was gone. I thought he had left with ever with Zerus and everyone else. Yeah, I think I I'm pretty sure you're right. I'm pretty sure he did. Um the, I I've gone on the rant before about how Jack Kirby created the same comic series four times and the Eternals is the worst version of that series. Uh-huh. And Thor, we got Loki in um in in humans, we got Maximus the Mad. Mm-hmm. It's a little less on brand with uh, New Gods. Who's like the trickster who's on their team, but not? Mm. Um, Mr. Miracle's kind of a trickster, but he's very reliable. Orion's kind of a hothead, but he always does the right thing in the end. I don't know. Maybe uh, that's why New Gods is the best, is because he uh, left the formula. Because Druig is just like the third best version of Loki, right? Yeah, and, and here he's not even Loki anymore. He's just straight up antagonist not even a trickster this and this is so endemic of what i was talking about like he's wearing a suit (laughs) he's just like a guy this is when people were like there was this moment that froze my blood when people on the internet started screaming for um john ham to play mr sinister in a movie and I was just like, you know that they're going to make him Dr. Essex of the Essex Corporation. And then he's got like a big boardroom. And then at the end, there's a diamond on his forehead for one second. <laughs> uh, right? Like, and, and that's what Druig in this feels like. Druig feels like the early 2000s non-committed superhero version uh, movie of this character. Yeah. Yeah, he really um, does. Legba, on the other hand... Um, is like a much fuller villain. I felt like who he followed this. Um, and I thought that Legbo was cool because he was making the most of the Eternals concept of like just about anyone that we've seen, actually. He would just like casually refer to like uh, existing in ancient Rome or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you felt the immortal weight on him in like a much realer way than you do whenever uh, Icarus is just like, we've been around for a while, but we haven't really seen anybody in that time. Mm. Um, so I started looking into, uh, Legba because on the one hand, I kind of liked him, but on the other hand, we're like really making a hard turn back to that old racist ancient astronaut thing. Yeah. And it doesn't help that his intro is a little, I don't know. They just, they wrote his intro very, I don't know where, what to say about it other than it struck me as playing on racist stereotypes yeah absolutely of 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 black men yeah but also being like weirdly a weird commentary on just preachers 
I don't know. It it's it struck me as very odd. Yeah, I mean, I he's the was... first new Eternal we've gotten in a while, and the, his introduction being he's this skeevy preacher who's sleeping with his his congregants. I I like don't love that. I you know what I this this is similar to the themes on uh on Daniel Nauf's other big uh, thing Carnival because that also has like a uh, duplicitous uh, traveling preachers. This is definitely a world that he's fascinated by, and I wonder why. Um, mm-hmm. On paper, I like the idea, but yeah, I was completely skeeved by uh, by reading it. But that's why. So I looked forward to see did anybody else. Um, ever try to bring Legba back and maybe uh, give him some more more depth because he seems like he has depth here. I got mm. the feeling that he has like an exciting backstory. Um, and it turns out the only other time he ever appeared was in a 2012 issue of Hulk, which is like a terrible run of Marvel Comics 2012 Hulk. But, but, oh, we're uh, going to be reading that. Yeah, but the issue is by Jeff Parker, which is the uh, least bad part of that run. Um, we'll see. So I'm hoping that Jeff Parker like does something to make me want to like keep the leg, but torch burning because I wanted to, he felt the, like the realest addition to their rogues gallery to me in a long time. Mm-hmm. But also, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of racism in this series and it's kind of a bummer. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's baked into the bones and every time they try to get it out, it just, it seeps back in. Um, seeps back out. Did you see Druig's actual uh, costume, though, in this first issue? Awful. Um, I gotta go back. I'm not looking at it at the moment. It makes a case for him wearing a suit. Describe it to me while I open the Uh, That's how bad it is. It's, um, he's wearing a red bucket helmet, uh, and his, he's got a red cape and, like, these big shoulder pads. Not shoulder pads, like, shoulder guards that kind of come up to above his ears to protect his neck and the sides of his face, I guess. And they're attached to these like arm shoulder pads with a cape running down the back. Oh yeah. It's very retro. Yeah. It just, it does not look good here. He looks like he, he looks like the red tornado. He looks somewhere Cross with Magneto. Yeah, he's got like a really cheap Magneto but bought out Walmart costume thing and a little bit of um the wizard. Mm-hmm. You know you yeah. know the uh, what's the wizard's name? Whitman, right? Dane Whit No, Dane, Dane Whitman's Whitman. the black knight. Damn it. He plays uh, cuz he's the Future Foundation kid. Bentley. Two. Bentley. Um Bentley Whitman. Um, there we yeah. go. Uh, Druig's costume looks like Bentley Whitman's costume, and he's even got the, d- the discs on him, which the wizard uses as his anti-gravity weapons. Mm. Um, anyway, just made me think of the wizard, and I wished I was reading about him. <laughs> he does kind of look like him too. You looking him up now? No, I remember what he looks like. He's got the he's got the evil beard. He's got yeah. the goatee. You know he's evil because he's got a goatee. Yeah, yeah. And the pointy beard. Um. Would you rank this as Druig's most antagonistic showing yet? Um, I don't know. He felt definitely scarier in the game in JRJR series. 
he felt more like his threat was more consequential in that because it seemed like it would do lasting damage whereas this just seemed like he wanted to mess around perpetually yeah. like low-key perpetually yeah he's he's kind of just on a collection hunt but he's not actually doing anything that's threatening i guess yeah. he's, he's got plans within plans but who cares about any of those plans yeah that's why he's dollar store loki and dollar store maximus the mad and maximus the mad was already dollar store loki i don't know i like maximus he's fun I, I, I don't get me wrong. I love Maximus. Maximus is the only person who understands Groot at, the, <laughs> in, at first. Maximus is the one who teaches everybody that Groot can talk. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love that run, if you haven't noticed. Um, so then we also have to talk about the larger cosmic threat in this, um, which uh, was best characterized by the Horde through most of the uh, series, but then at the end it was uh, embodied as the Fulcrum. Oh, yeah. They're kind of just there. They're, I mean, it's the Annihilation Wave, but with right, more it's, it's of a... Big mass of bugs. Yeah. Um, big mass of bugs. They so, were fine. They, like, uh, I could take or leave their existence i didn't think they added anything to the threat well so i feel like when we're reading eternals in their own stuff it's about the eternals and the deviants and druig is a backstabber and whatnot and but when the eternals show up in other stories Mm -hmm. it is always about the celestials nobody would give the time of day to the eternals if they didn't have the celestials coming along with them yes and the way and the, and the celestials have always fascinated people because of how they are supposed to be like the highest extreme of of power in this universe that's very concerned with superpowers. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought the horde and the fulcrum was kind of interesting because they were um, being set up into like the cosmic equation of how the celestials worked. And Fulcrum was kind of, mm. seemed to me to be, like, set up to be, like, an anti-celestial. And they say here that the um, the Horde bugs were all once deviants, in other words. I mean, the Fulcrum will, like, eat the world and transform all its deviants into bugs and move on. Delicious. And, delicious. But I, that's just, like, a, that gives another piece of the um, Celestials mythos that doesn't connect to anything else and doesn't make sense and just makes this this big flabby thing. I even um, got excited because I thought that maybe I had seen the Horde before in Greg Pak's Fuck Wild but Incredible Extreme X-Men. You know that run? Did you? Um, I've read that run. That's the one with uh, where Wolverine is married to Hercules (laughs) in an alternate timeline and they both fought in the American Civil War. Oh, I meant did, did you think you saw them there? Uh, so I looked, and there was a villain that was the exact same thing, um, like these celestial timeline bugs, but they were called the Exterminators. Ooh. And I was like, damn, we have another bug creature serving the same function in a much funner book. <laughs> that that sucks, this book. This is called The Horde. Yep, yep. They're... Yeah. I don't... I. I get, I get where you're coming from with the horde that they add this additional element, but you know they're not really done much with it. 
and it's part of this larger retcon to try and make the Celestials more worldly because at first the 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 um implication was that the the celestials came to earth and did something special here on earth which is why the humans the you know the eternals the deviants and the humans existed as they did then that slowly changed so that the celestials were doing things you know all around the universe and then here it's made explicit that the Earth is one of many experiments in the same vein where it's just Earth is special for whatever reason because of the Dreaming Celestial, not because of, you know, because the Celestials came back a few times to check on their progress. Um, it's that the Dreaming Celestial reported to the Fulcrum. It, it's all these additional layers of complexity that don't actually add much to the story like saying that there was originally a hundred Eternals and a hundred Deviants on every planet they go to, and eventually the Deviants overcome, and the Eternals are there to make sure that the Deviants don't become greater. It's like this, like again, false dichotomy of good evil. But I would. I don't want to argue... say it's very Christian, but um, I know what you mean. I would argue though that the the celestial mythology has a big hole in the middle of it that is like asking to be filled by something and in fact the most interesting ongoing story in the eternals is learning more about the celestials because the, the story is just like screaming for that story to be told like wolverine's secret past is screaming to be told mm -hmm. and much like telling sure. the story of wolverine's secret past the actual answers kind of couldn't match whatever you were imagining that's true and yeah. but Wolverine's secret past, like people have done really interesting stories um, or like I always love in the Joss Whedon and Astonishing X-Men when Wolverine's reverted into his childhood form and he's like a little fancy lad. Mm -hmm. um, that's like a fun thing. Yeah, he was a little fancy lad in that weird comic. Um, so I don't really hold it against... I guess this comic didn't come up with a great answer to what are the Celestials and what are they? is their purpose. But I do think that someone needs to address that. And the longer it goes unaddressed, the, the longer... You know, the more I feel like... It's running out of... This series is running out of steam. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was just looking back over the initial explanation of the Horde and rereading that made it click a little more i went oh right the celestials basically are answering to their boss and are competing with their uh their co-worker from down the hall who kind of sucks yeah but that but i like that that's like personification on like a level that humans can understand when they're you know operating on this mm -hmm. higher plane yeah yeah it's it's kind of nice and it sets up the the other major antagonist throughout this this series who i did not expect to be an antagonist but we all know how that will happen with dr damien and this is basically the same thing <laughs> who are you referring uh, we to? got we got ajak right uh fuck that guy <laughs> yeah fuck ajak he comes in he's been around forever how is he back uh the machine called earth don't question it i mean um 
I have read some later issues of Eternals, and yeah, later we understand like what their resurrection rules are a little bit better. So I don't mind them just randomly bringing back an Eternal. I don't like that he mm. was coming after my boy Gilgamesh. No, yeah, but Ajax is back around. Um, it's again with what Gaiman did. It's hard to tell what parts of the continuity before were kept and what weren't. Um, oh, you know, that's with, easily because he reintroduced. He essentially introduced resurrection. Uh, so anyone who had died, who had been disappeared, who you know went off into space, you could just say, "Oh, they died there and then was brought back on Earth." Yeah, whatever. Um, but Ajax is back. He no longer is the mouthpiece for the Celestials, which has been his whole role the entire time he's existed. Been the communicator, like he's the expert, and now that's Makari. So he's jealous. I'm like that. I really liked that part. I liked that that uh, dynamic. But also, why did they make Ajax Druig? Or why did like, they just leave Druig in space and have Ajax go to fake Russia? Yeah, or maybe not even have fake Russia at all. Just have Ajax fucking around with them, and everyone's like, "Why? Why are all these other Eternals, uh, you know, gathering and and uh, opposing the Makari faction? Essentially, like create Eternals factions without a clear head. That would have been interesting because Ajax working kind of in the shadows." Yeah, I mean, as with so many, you're really making it clear that there's a lot in this comic that was, like, a pretty interesting idea that doesn't get that deeply explored and then is never returned to again. Yeah, and, like, I like Makari's slow kind of addiction to being the celestial mouthpiece, but we don't really see that spin out in any way other than just kind of him slowly being more and more isolated. Uh, and then Cersei and Thena talk about makari the whole time um That's yeah it. doesn't even pass the bechdel test no um Zurus is back he once again kind of stinks only loves his dog can't think doesn't think that thena's son real son uh joey not gestalt son daughter twins dark angel <laughs> matters he's like oh yeah just kill it and she's like what Zerus, what? You love your dog, but not my son, not your grandson? That doesn't really go anywhere, but... I mean, yeah. I Zer felt it was worth bringing up. I mean, it's worth bringing up. That that kid never appears in another Marvel comic, by the way. Joey or Dark Angel? Joey! Yeah, I'm, I, I'm not surprised. What's his name, Joey Athena? I, yes, Joey Athena. That... I think so is dumb <laughs> um can i ask you a question elias please do what the fuck is the unimind why do you form it and how do you use it uh do you want me to try and explain it within the context of this series or do you want me to try to like I am holding, my assumption was. I am holding you personally responsible to uh, extrapolate from all Eternals we've read so far to tell me what the fuck the Unimind is. Okay. 
Well, we know that it is a gestalt entity. It is a merging of consciousness. That much is pretty well established and pretty consistent across all of them. I'm sorry. We just love gestalt and gestalt entities on this it's show. Such a fun word to say. <laughs> the gestalt entity. But it's nominally it's supposed to be a collection of all of the Eternals. Uh, and that's how and that's how they make decisions. They, they gather together and it makes them supreme, a supremely powerful psychic being by combining them into one. Um, they needed a special machine to do it at first. And then they needed it would call all of the Eternals like they would show up. There's like something in their bones made them have to appear. Uh, and then they would merge, do their thing and then unmerge, you know, make the decision, do whatever. Uh, and then... They would all be, they would all accept the, the results or whatever. Humans, deviants, anyone could really be brought into the, the, the Unimind. Uh, and then at some point that changed and apparently humans and deviants could not join the Unimind. And then also apparently the Unimind could be formed with humans, but it was, uh, what's the, it was taboo and would lead to the mad weary. Oh, if you right. didn't the have enough weary. Eternals. Jesus. The mad weary. Um, I mean, there's more, but none of it makes any sense. What is the Unimind? I don't know. It's, it's the get out of jail free card. Yeah, they formed the Unimind in this, and my eyes completely glazed over. And they, they, I don't. I wish I wrote it down. They say they're like forming like a humanistic Unimind. They use some stupid adjective. Um, let's see. What issue was that in? Oh my god, I don't even remember. I should have yeah. said the issue. Well, while we're doing that, I, I do have a bone to pick with Daniel Acuna's um, coloring. Mm -hmm. He's very bad at keeping consistent shading of characters' skin tones. Yeah, and this uh, especially. So, and it's not even like it's changing light to light. Like, Fastos is supposed to be black. Like, very explicitly. And in some panels, he looks pale as a ghost. He only, I, I would describe that color as, like, lavender. Yeah. And, like, it gets better as it goes on. Like, you can see that he's clearly being colored more black, but then lit, lit, lit up based on how much sun or light was on his face. But, like, when you compare a panel of Thena next to Festos, they have very similar skin tone in the same lighting. I'm like, where, Why? Not why, but like uh, that feels like a failure of of the coloring. Did Acuna do? Um, am I remembering correctly? He did Remender's um, Uncanny Avengers. He never did Uncanny X Force. I yeah, uh, don't think so. Yeah, yeah. Just the, the art in Uncanny X Force was that problem is unfortunately all too common in, in comics. But the it was very similar in Uncanny X Force, where like the color palette of the book favored a lot of these like pale neutral colors. Um, mm -hmm. and, and then a lot of times in certain lighting, the characters would uh, just like be blanched. It's especially interesting because from what I know, Daniel Acuna is a black creator. Um, he's a, he's Spanish uh, and, and is a black creator. So I don't know if it was, he yeah, just I mean, wasn't, I think... wasn't so good at coloring at this time. If, there was like a mandate because you know sometimes they'll say no you need to lighten this character up it should be this this color or whatever yeah which is fucked yeah 
or if it was, you know, a lack of reference materials. Which is also really feasible given, uh, like, I'm sure we're just starting to digitize comics right now. Yeah. So, I don't know. But it, it, it was worth pointing out. Uh, yeah, and, and thank you for pointing that out, because I mostly liked Acuna's art, even though, like, uh, he gets better. Yes. Yeah. Um, where Did you find the Unimind? No, I, I could not find the Unimind. It's okay, because now, because what I, I found uh, skipping around, and I almost forgot these guys were even here. Elias, who are the young gods? So they show up in the annual issue. Right. right? And... I did not give a shit about them, but I did feel like the annual issue had, like, um, a buoyancy that the other issues uh, didn't have, and I was wondering why, and then I saw, oh, there's a completely different creative team here. Interesting. I didn't like the annual as much as the main series, but I think that might have been because of the art. Um, The art's, uh... Yeah, it's a lot. It definitely felt like um, you were expecting water, but you took a sip of Sprite. You ever done that? Mm, I I would go as far as saying I was expecting water and got Sierra Mist. (laughs) What's your problem with Sierra Mist? As lemon-lime beverages go, it's in the middle for me. (laughs) All right. Maybe I was expecting water and got Baja Blast. (laughs) Yeah, that's disgusting. (laughs) But yeah... I, I'm sorry to uh, who's the artist again. I'm sorry to um, uh, Pascal Alexi, but uh, no, this not not your best work. Um, I have not read any of the other works, so I can't say if it's middle or not. But the figure work was bad. The the everyone looked like there were too many little detail lines added, so people look really wrinkly. Yeah. There's like oddly wrinkly. I do not like it. There's this one page. I think it's page eight, six, nine. Oh, eight, seven. Okay, you've, I've lost you. Nine on Marvel Unlimited. Makari's in the top corner. He looks like he has to pee. Uh, Cersei is being dragged away by someone. Oh, one, I, of the young, sorry. one of the young gods. Can mm-hmm. I just uh, amend what you said? He doesn't look Please. like he has to pee. He looks like he just peed and is trying to play it cool and is checking to see if anybody noticed. <laughs> You're right. You're right. That's what that expression looks like. It is. Cersei's being dragged away and her boobs are just spilling out of what looks like just paper. Her costume looks like paper, like cardboard. Yeah, it's weirdly uh, then, chunky too. Yeah. And chunky, just, but but like sheer. Chunky, but sheer. Yeah. It's just not, not good art. Uh, it's the kind of... I like Lionel Francis Yu's art. It reminds me of Discount Him. Sure. I, I see the uh, the family tree relation. And yeah. just to reiterate, I um I didn't say that this was a better issue or an issue I enjoyed the most, but it just um it felt lighter. The dialogue was just a little quicker on its feet. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And then I, but to the point where I was just like, this does not feel like the same writer to me. And I looked at it and sure enough, it was our guy, Fred Van Lenty, who we love on this podcast. We do, we do. This um, is not his best, but it's pretty okay. Yeah, and I think the main thing that's holding it back is the young gods are so shitty. Do you do you know anything about the young gods? Um, why don't you uh, bring me up to speed? Okay, so we've met the young gods before, uh, in 
at the end of the second Eternals volume, these were the 12 people gathered from around the Earth that were taken up by the uh, Celestials into their ship to represent uh, humanity uh, in the stars doing stuff and things. Who knows? Uh, They show up again in a backup in Marvel Comics Presents, um, you know, doing Celestial whatever, uh, training to be this team. And that was in like the, the early 90s. And they had a small role in the Evolutionary War, which we've touched on a couple times, but uh, we're not going to read because, by all accounts, it is garbage, and also uh, we don't feel like it. But it's... that's where Gar is is brought back. Um, no, no, he doesn't show up there. That's all the High Evolutionary. Gar is Atlantis Attacks. Another uh, similar quality yes. crossover. And the issue of Evolutionary War he shows up in is in Spectacular Spider-Man Annual, Volume 1, Number 8. Jaina, why don't you click on that that link for me? Oh, yes. So uh, for our listeners, Elias uh, wrote in our shared notes, do not click until we record with a Marvel Fandom Wiki uh, link. I am opening now. Yeah, I wanted to get... I want to get your live reaction of that cover. Okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm scrolling down slowly here. Spectacular Spider-Man Annual Volume 1, Number 8, Return to Sender, part of the Evolutionary War event. Oh no, not again, it says on the cover. Gwen Stacy is back. Plus, <laughs> the dramatic return of the Young Gods. Um. So I just found it so funny. <laughs> Yeah, it's so incongruous that you're just like, uh, <laughs> well, first of all, it's so funny that he's saying, oh, no, not again, because yeah. Gwen Stacy's come back way too many times, and he knows it. Um, and then oh, when This they, is 1988. It looks like 1988. This looks like the side of a cereal box from when I was a kid. Um, and, um, I, and then it's just like the promise of the return of the young gods. And also, like, what the hell is Spider-Man doing? He's leaping over these two trash cans that look teeny <laughs> tiny under him. Like, the scale is completely off. They look like Legos. And he's sort of, like, r- jumping at a wall. And from the angle he's at, all his limbs should be touching the wall. But some of them are kind of, like, clipping past it in an M.C. Escher-like way up into the titles. And um, when, yeah, he just looks like he's about to splat uh, or, like, uh, go through the wall. Yeah, um, it, it's great. Yeah. Uh, not as wonderful as that uh, cover I sent you with Montenegro when he threatened the heroes for hire, but it's pretty good. <laughs> it is. I love it. So um, that's about it. The, the Young Gods, we've read a third of their appearances. This is their final appearance. Uh, and uh, after holding up surprisingly well against the, the Eternals, but... I don't know. Their whole thing in this issue, which I don't know if Van Lenti did it or someone else or whatever, was just they came back after Earth because they were being ignored by the Celestials uh, and have gone a little bit uh, stir-crazy and decided, you know what? We're going to make our own Celestial using this fake, using this Unimine. This might be where the Unimine showed up. Yes, I uh, think the young so. Young gods formed it, uh, and b- I just and then at the end they're they're defeated and the 
Eternals are debating whether or not they should just throw them into the ocean or atomize them, which I'm like, okay. <laughs> um, tell me, Elias, are you they familiar? Seen since. Are you familiar with Marvel's God Squad? No. The God Squad originally appeared in The Incredible Hercules, um, and it was led by Hercules along with Thor, Cersei of the Eternals, Silver Surfer, Snowbird from um, Alpha Flight, uh, Mikaboshi, the Japanese Lord of Chaos, Ajak, Amadeus Cho, Atum Ra, and uh, Venus. And they all get on a team together to fight the Skrull Gods, which is awesome. And the Skrull Gods are freaking crazy. That's wild. And every so often, uh, different combinations of those characters have uh, gotten together to fight like uh, other planets' god threats. And we never need to see the young gods again because the god squad is the fun version of them. Yeah. Let's bring back the god squad. Bring back the god squad. Um, there's um two more characters I wanted to touch upon before we wrapped up for today. Okay. Um... One of them is Tiamat, the Dreaming Celestial, who awakens in this, and we see its face. Oh, yeah, we do. Um, How many fucking times has Tiamat woken up and then drifted back to sleep? Let's see. There was the first Dreaming Celestial saga. Then I think something happened in... I think they tried to resurrect him again. No, no, they didn't. They kind of ignored him. I think this might be the third time, but this is technically a continuation of the second time. Well, and I know that Mr. Sinister is going to hijack it, uh, it in the very near future. Um, oh, yeah. Just like, I, what's the point in having this Dreaming Celestial if all it does is like wake up for a second and then go right back to where it was? Well, and it was every supposed time... to be the big evil one, but then they retconned that because they realized whoops maybe that doesn't work so well i have liked i pretty much like every time the uh dreaming celestial shows up um in like a vacuum i would like the appearance but when you put all of them together i hate them mm. it i just, have no defense yeah it just adds up to it adds it's so much less than the sum of its parts sadly yeah um the final character i want to talk about today is one who you tried to hide from me his involvement in this series i did um do you want to you want to surprise the audience like uh, i got to be surprised yes so part way through the series or actually it's when we get to the second arc of the series issues seven through nine which has a new artist sadly um we have the return of our favorite eternal Vampirio. Is he Vampirio or I think he's just Vampiro? Um you're right, it is just Vampiro. Um I wrote it wrong. Th that is okay. Uh Vampiro is also the name of a real wrestler. Even better. Um like a venerable legendary wrestler. Elias, since last time we talked about Eternals, you have actually come and watched wrestling with me and my friends. Uh between the since the last time we recorded uh, Eternals episodes, did uh, that give you a new appreciation for our man Vampiro? It has, it has, but sadly he doesn't get to do that much. No, because he gets killed dead. Yeah, he gets killed dead, and 
weirdly, we didn't know he was going to be showing up in this. He was not mentioned to show up in this series when you looked up Vampirio's um, many appearances. Yeah. Um, I mean, the death doesn't stick, fortunately. Well, of course. No, no Eternal really stays dead. Um, but yeah, disrespectful to Vampiro, who is one of the coolest Eternals. He's got a wife, and I love that about him. He's a wife guy. Um, and it was it was rude of them to kill him, and because of that, I can not give this book a higher score than like a C minus. I mean, you weren't you weren't sad when they killed Joey. Who? I'm kidding. Joey. I know who, I know who Joey is. I don't give a shit about Joey. <laughs> yeah, he's uh, unceremoniously killed off. Uh, and then Makari is unceremoniously killed off. Pretty yeah. brutally, actually. Yeah, it was pretty brutal. Um, although that was that one was foreshadowed a little bit. True, true. That one, that one came. Uh, both of them kind of were. Um, Joey's death kind of just felt more uh, less impactful than it really should have. Yeah, I meant Vampiro's death wasn't foreshadowed. That came out of nowhere. No, yeah, that came out of nowhere. Like Randy Orton's RKO. Those are words. It's a wrestling. They mean things independently. It's a wrestling reference. <laughs> All of our wrestling fans are gonna gonna have so so much enjoyment at that. It's a pretty basic reference. They're gonna be like, "Ah, that was uh, weak." <laughs> um. So, interestingly, before we get to the last two, I I did want to comment. The end of every issue has these, like, classic Kirby style. Um, ne- next time on boxes, like full of purple prose and then taglines that are very sensational. Uh, I loved all of those. Yeah, I'm that glad was you... maybe my favorite part of the whole comic. I'm glad you pointed that out. That those were super fun, and I do get that Eternals has been an opportunity for various creators to like do an impression of Kirby, like do a cover version of a Kirby comic um mm-hmm. not the cover of a Kirby comic that was confusing but um <laughs> uh but so like uh, mimicking his writing style even in that limited way was a, a delight because obviously everyone's aping his art style yes yes oh Makari poor Makari I don't like Makari as much as you I don't think Makari has a lot of personality oh he doesn't but I mean the way he went out was just so brutal. I mean, yeah, no one deserves to go out that way. Not even Makari. No. Um, who was the last character that you wanted to talk about? It was Vampiro. Tiamat and Vampiro. Oh, okay. I, I guess Tiamat barely counts as a character. Yeah. Um, Gilgamesh really gets the short end of the stick in this series, too. He's made into a, a villain for yeah, a bit. He, he gets brainwashed in a pretty boring way. Yep. Uh, and then... Makari is brought back as Cersei, and also Joey comes back to life. Um, the Makari Cersei thing was just like a, a step too far. I said, "How dare you?" Why? Um, there's just like too much changing of the, these characters. Were nothing to me, and then we're switching their like identities. <laughs> Let me like the character. You can't have more Eternals until you know what to do with the Eternals you have. Yeah, but. They don't even really do it. Like, it, it's kind of a trade-off. 
Cersei dies, and so Makari can live. Yeah. Um, Which is... Bah. Bah humbug. Yeah, Cersei is the closest to having a personality any of these Eternals ever come. Yeah, and Cersei kind of is is then floating in a bar, talking to who we find out is the Fulcrum, and, like, I appreciate them going full sci-fi bullshit uh, with the Watcher and uh, Tiamat having a conversation. (laughs) Um, That was fun. I I actually wrote that it, it felt very what if. Yeah. Yeah, the last three issues of this kind of go off the rails. Which is And I don't case... know if it's a good or a bad thing. That's been the case with most Eternals runs. The last You're couple right. of issues always completely spiral out of control. But in this case at least it was like a fun shit show instead of inscrutable. I mean it was mm-hmm. inscrutable also. But um Could you tell me a little bit more about um Manifest Destiny? Manifest Destiny. Yeah, you're talking about uh, 2008 X-Men. You're speaking my language. Um, so uh, the big X-Men story before Manifest Destiny was House of M, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you, of course, know the uh, significant continuity development there at the end. No more mutants. Yeah, Scarlet Witch erases the mutant gene from every mutant except for 198 of them at first. Mm-hmm. And um, after that, the government uh, basically locks down the Xavier Mansion and all mutants have to live there or be imprisoned. And eventually the X-Men decide this is not a good arrangement and they strike out West. Manifest Destiny was a story about um, the X-Men are moving to San Francisco and eventually um, Cyclops and Magneto team up and build an island that they call Utopia right off the coast of San Francisco. Uh Uh-huh. Um. And but so what's fun about Manifest Destiny is it's kind of like a road story about how various X-Men made their way west. Mm-hmm. Um, so Beast is on a walkabout around this time and he is going to various villains trying to undo House of M and um, Pixie and Wolverine get matched up as a pair and Pixie becomes his latest like teen girl sidekick that he gets to be a cool mentor for. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of that happens here. And you get to see the beginning of, like, Cyclops introducing the idea of mutants living in their city to, like, the mayor of San Francisco and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And they do a really good job at, like, uh, I like the San Francisco era of X-Men. They really play with the idea that the X-Men gravitated there because San Francisco has a reputation for being such a, like, wonderful, tolerant place or whatever. I mean, that is where the Celestial decided to... to... (laughs) pack up shop that you that which does come up but they're, they're playing on like the vibes of san francisco as like a liberal haven city and how that's like a actually in actuality a lot of the liberals who live there are like uh nimbies who don't actually want the danger of like mutants li- moving to their town or anything mm-hmm. so people are constantly objecting to the mutants presence while they're talking you know out, out of the other side of their face while talking about how wonderful it is that mutants move to their fair city interesting okay it's like there's a lot more interesting stuff happening in that era than people give credit for because there's a lot of greg land issues there, the mm. bigger stories in this era are pretty widely disliked um but i guess uh, people like uh uh messiah complex which is right before this okay but um but i think this is a, a low-key underrated part of x-men uh and their dynamics and relationship with the city of san francisco is something i wish more books would remember 
that's Manifest Destiny. Okay. You know, I think that's a pretty fun... I thought it was more of an event than a status quo. It was one of those, like, all the books have a banner for a month thing. Yeah, that was the... I always... I I don't know if I like that practice at Marvel. Because that's what happened here. They had the the banner and the X-Men show up. But I I thought maybe something else was happening other than they moved to San Francisco. Which is a fun, as you said, idea because of what they did with it, but... Yeah, well, it's, it's like yeah. a weird weak sauce idea for an event on paper, but it ends up being this great, uh, like, quiet character piece, a lot of it. And, you know, there's, villi- there's like, bombastic villains and everything, but... um, Yeah. But it ends up being more I, about, mm-hmm. like, uh, the everyday life of the X-Men, which is usually the best part. It really is. I wish we got more low-key X-Men stories. Yeah. You should read the yeah. Rogue and Gambit series that's coming out right now. <laughs> Speaking of not low-key, I think I found where, with the Unimind section you were talking about. So the last issue of this series goes buck wild. It goes banana Everything cosmic. in the kitchen sink. This is the, oh crap, we got canceled, we need to wrap this up now issue. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and the Eternals form not a, like a Unimind that possesses Tiamat but also works with Tiamat um, to defeat the Horde, send them out, um, while Tiamat has, like, brain conversation with the Watcher and then ascends to a higher plane and talks to the Fulcrum, who just wanted a friend. Yeah, uh, he, like, I... pulls off his helmet, becomes Firestorm. <laughs> kind of <laughs> looks they like have Firestorm. A nice, a nice conversation. Um... And then they both disappear, and we cut to Stuttgart, Germany, 2115 AD, where we find out that this has all been narrated as a story to a reporter by some some guy who's been in shadow this whole time. Um, and the... What's it called? Oh, yeah, the they... This reporter apparently wrote a book about all of this, um, and then gets mind wiped into forgetting all of it because Um, fuck you that's why i thought that was a cute enough epilogue i guess um yeah i think i think it was because she didn't believe them believe him that the eternal still existed or did i mean i don't blame her i forget the eternals exist sometimes too yeah while i'm reading Uh, them and this is where we find out that joey joey athena survives into the future becomes one of the eternals with cersei oh who's back by the way uh, Makari and uh, Icarus, and they fly off into the future because it's the future, and no one remembers what happened because, you know, that that's kind of the way of people. We forget that big events happened, even when they happen right in front of our faces. We forget their lessons, which could for- have been poignant, but they don't really dwell on that. Yeah, yeah. The the I, I did not walk away with an overwhelming feeling of themes. Well, you can find themes in anything. You can find. No, of course, of course. But I didn't find. I walk. Good. I don't walk away uh, overwhelmed by their. Uh, you know their their conclusions. No. Yeah. No. Unfortunately, not. Um, um, but I found the this week's reading to be uh, pretty readable. Not too much of a chore. And when there was a lot of Inhumans, they kind of blurred together. But you there mean was Eternals? like a, Yeah. Jesus. Uh, <laughs> Uh, when there was a lot of Eternals and a scene together, they would blur together for me. 
but there was the couple that I liked, even if a lot of them got the short end, uh, and it was fun to check in with them. And I really wish we would wean the cast down to like Gilgamesh, Vampiro, Carcass, and um, Cersei. Well, Carcass is dead, and he's a deviant, so he's not coming back. Uh, yeah, never coming back six feet underground, I'm sure. Yeah. Poor Carcass. Um, we'll never forget you. We will forget Ransack. Fuck Ransack. Oh, I do. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll forget Ransack, but uh, Ransack's not that bad. Ransack's a You're right. He's no Ajax. Yeah. There we go. Now, there's a shitty Eternal, and he's still around. We can't He's still around. Well, we'll we'll see. Because uh, next time, well, not next time. Um, this is the final Eternals anything until uh, we get Karen Gillan's big Eternals run in, like, what was it, 2019 is when it started? 2020? I, around there, yeah. I, I around there. Around the time of the, the Eternals movie. Um, but in between, there were a few scattered issues that feature um, the Eternals as well as some uh, issues that we missed that were, you know tangential but somewhat substantial Eternals adventures and then like super tangential stuff or just completely unavailable. So next time, as was foreshadowed earlier, we're going to be reading uh, Hulk Volume 2 number 49 which was from 2012 Thor the Deviants Saga 1 through 5 Avengers Volume 8 number 4 this is the Jason Aaron run the Eternals Forever One-Shot, which was written by Ralph Macchio, came out in 2021. And then the last two issues of Symbiote Spider-Man Crossroads, which are numbers four through five. Um, and then some of the other issues we wanted to at least touch upon were uh, Silver Surfer Annual number one from 1988, which was part of that aforementioned Evolutionary War crossover. Um, at this point, what, what did we say we were going to do with these issues? Um, we're going to, a lot of these issues are uh, hard to track down and I don't, I'm not confident we're going to be that successful, but I, we're, we're both going to reach out, see if we can find copies of the issues or interviews, maybe an old issue of wizard magazine where one of them was reviewed any sign we can find that they exist to come to the podcast. And if, if you are successful and you want to cue us in on a good place to find these issues, great. But otherwise, we're going to do our uh, level best, but it's obviously not going to be uh, pressing to read every one of these obscure issues. Yeah. So that includes the Fantastic Four Unlimited, number 10, which is from the 90s, uh, and Incredible Hercules, number 116, which was set between Eternals Volume 3 and Volume 4. Uh, and then the ones that are much more tangential, there's the original Atlantis Attacks crossover, which happened across like 10 different annuals. Uh, I think it was in 1989? I believe, yeah, 89 into 90 sounds right. Yeah. The original Contest of Champions, which is Marvel Superheroes Contest of Champions. It's a three-issue miniseries. I have read. It is bizarre. Oh, yeah. Uh, Real Heroes, number one, which is, and I kid you not, a tie-in comic with Pizza Hut. That Uh, used to be a thing. Yeah. What, but Pizza Hut? Yeah, Pizza Hut has, like, a Happy Meal kind of thing. I guess. I didn't think it would be Marvel Comics. There was a fun uh, X-Men Comics uh, Pizza Hut issue that people still circulate. Hmm. 
Uh, so Quasar number 51 through 58 features a bunch of the Eternals at some point, And at that same time, the Star Blast event was happening. We don't really know much about it. <laughs> I, uh, I don't. Least, yeah. So we'll do a little research, bring it to you, find out what we can say about it. I don't think it has any bearing on the Eternal stuff. Fall of the Hulk's Alpha. The Eternals are show up for four whole pages. It's gonna be uh, that then, one's gonna be rough. Yeah, that one's gonna be rough. Uh, and then all new Invaders numbers three through five and number thirteen and maybe number fifteen. I don't know. Uh, that series uh, is fun. Yeah, that one's from twenty fourteen. Uh, so the important issues can be found in Red Hulk Haunted. Uh, for trades, Thor, the Deviant Saga, and Avengers by Jason Aaron, Volume 1, The Final Host, uh, as well as Symbiote Spider-Man, Crossroads, and I'm not sure where the Eternals Forever one-shot's collected. It might be with the Karen Gillan stuff. It might not, um, but it's on Marvel Unlimited. Yeah, and so we're going to come in, like, this is the Eternals desert when they weren't really publishing much of anything, and we're going to come in and just, like, look at where, uh, who was using them how, which directions was the story going in? Just like uh, as the Eternals are getting more and more irrelevant before they come back and have the Kieran Gillen comic, which I think we're both really going to enjoy reading. Yeah. Uh, although in between there, we will have another quick detour into a non-comics realm. Oh, yes. Uh, That's going to be fun. Uh, that will be fun. I mean, it won't be fun, but me uh, being cranky <laughs> might be fun for you. It'll be nice to see the movie after having read all of this now. I'm interested to hear you say that because I feel like I'm going to have the opposite experience of what you just said. <laughs> well, until then, where can they find you, Jaina, on the larger interwebs? Fewer and fewer places every day, but uh, folks can still find me writing stories for multiversitycomics.com, which is a pretty great website. And sometimes I write things for other people. Uh, but recently I've been kind of keeping to myself and keeping quiet. Uh, so... That's where you should head. My Tumblr exists, my Twitter exists, but I have not been on them in quite some time. I like being off of social media. I recommend it. How about you, Elias? After uh, that, we're going to both find you on social media. I mean, they can still find my handle at Quetzalish. That's Q-U-E-T-Z-E-L-I-S-H. Um, it has been retconned seven or eight different times now as to where that came from, when it came from, and also whose name I stole it from. Um but you can find find it on Twitter. I, again, have not logged in, especially because I'm afraid that the second I do, the whole site will crash on me. Um, and the best way to contact me is to email me at my Multiversity Comics email, which is erosner at multiversitycomics.com. Um, that's, that really is the best place to, to contact me. I'm still writing at Multiversity. It's a lot of fun. I just covered the, the 30th anniversary of the Babylon 5 pilot episode, uh, which was nice to go back to and truly refreshing to see. I haven't read that yet. I'm excited. That sounds great. Oh, watch. It was the pilot. Yeah, I've seen the pilot actually before. It's the one episode I know I've seen. <laughs> All right. Well, until next time, Excelsior. Thank <laughs> you.